Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome into the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. I have a real treat for you. I had been waiting to talk to this lady. Sometimes in the podcasting world, you have schedules. You have to manipulate. And, and people will just have different schedules. But I've always found that the best conversations are well worth waiting for. This one is going to be no exception. And I am so happy to welcome Tanya Sheckley to the Intentional Encourager podcast. She's going to tell her story. She's going to talk about her academy, Up Academy, out in California. We're going to have a great conversation. I promise you, her story is going to intentionally encourage you. Tanya, how are you today? Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast. I am great, Brian. I'm so happy to be here and so glad that we finally made it work out. I'm always amazed by that because when you're trying to schedule guests, everybody, and you're on the West Coast, I'm on the East Coast. And, and sometimes logistics don't quite work out, but I've always found the best conversations when I've had to reschedule guests and things like that. Those conversations are just amazing. And I know we're going to have an amazing conversation. So I am, my, my thanks to you for making it work. As I hit the microphone stand, folks, when you're seeing this on YouTube, you know, again, we don't edit stuff out. We just let it go because... Again, why you know why would we do that? So, Tanya, got to start here with you in this question, and I ask folks all the time around their experiences with COVID nineteen. We're still kind of on the tail end, and we've kind of had some going back a little bit here, and so I know what we've been going through in West Virginia. I want to hear your perspective of what you and your family have gone through personally and professionally out in California around COVID-19 and, and the impacts, but mainly what you've learned through the pandemic. Sure. I, I think it's an important question and something that it's good for all of us to talk about. Um, you know, California has approached the entire COVID situation more strictly and stringently than a lot of the country. We were hit instantly with a full shutdown, lockdown, nothing was open, no retail. Like it was challenging to go to the grocery store for a while. You had to wait outside. There were certain numbers of people. Um, the kids couldn't go anywhere. It was one family member everywhere we went. Um, so it was an instant shift in the way that we lived and did business. Um, it shut the school down um, for the last three months of last year. You know, we, we got through the summer. We had a, we actually, as a family, had a really good summer, spent a lot of time together. We're able to go camping, spend some time outdoors. Um, and then coming into the school year, it was really for us about communication and community and how could we all work together? How could we keep our community safe? How could we be diligent and respectful and still do all of the things of daily living that we wanted to do? And so our, our school worked very hard to keep all of our families safe. We were able to operate in person all year last year, which was really unusual for this area. Um, but as a small private school, we were able to maintain um, solid procedures so that that was able to happen. I got to uh, ask you something real quick, if you don't mind me jumping in, because you, that was a rarity in the state of California, that the in-person learning. And it was a rarity in other parts of the country, not just California, but other parts of the country as well. You mentioned a small private school. My son graduated from a small Christian school here in West Virginia. What was the what were the things that made you be able to stay as an in-person learning? Because that was pretty powerful that you were still able to keep the kids there and do education in person. How did take me through that process of how you guys were able to do that and accomplish that? What a, what a great accomplishment. Yeah, it really was. And for us, you know, it was multifaceted. So it was diligence and vigilance on the part of our community and being safe and careful in their outings and within their pods and not, not extending that 
you know, the group of people that we saw much beyond whoever they saw before school started and then the school community. Um, it was following the state and local guidelines around, you know, masking. We put air purifiers in every classroom. Every classroom has windows. Everything was open all winter. Um, our heating bills were a little bit higher as we kept the heat on and the windows open and the air purifiers running. Um, but we managed to keep everybody safe and managed to stay in school year round. Um, so that was fantastic for us, you know, from, you know, and we have really small class sizes. We're a small school. We capped our classes last year at eight students per class. We only had 16 kids in the building. Um, and so that made a big difference too. And it's something that a lot of schools just didn't have the leeway or the option of doing. Um, but as a small micro school, it just made sense to us to keep our class sizes really small. I love that because it, what it does is it promotes that really, that hands-on learning. And that's what, you know, that was really important for my family and I when we decided to put our son in Christian school were the small class sizes. We wanted hands-on learning. We just wanted a different atmosphere and a different environment for our kids. And it sounds to me like you have that same mission and vision with Up Academy that you really want something unique and special that, that, that is really hands-on what were you hearing from some of the parents about the challenges that you were overcoming in this time? Because a lot of people were not equipped to do this. And you guys just, I, my hat's off to you. I admire that. That is so cool. That That's a story you really don't hear of, you know what? We were still able to move and function. We were still able to deliver a great experience for our families. What was, what was some of the feedback that you heard from families around staying open and keeping that in-person unique experience? Yeah, our, our families were excited. They were happy. They could work from home without their kids being underfoot. Their kids weren't on screens all day long. Um, you know, our, our families were ecstatic that we were here and we were open and we were able to provide what we could. Um, the flip side of that is, you know, I think there's also some guilt that comes along with that ability to be open and that ability to serve a small number of families because there were so many people um, and so many challenges that the pandemic brought up, you know, looking at the digital divide, looking at the divide among, um, you know, socioeconomic, among demographics, among different school districts. And so there is a piece of us that, yes, we were open and we were able to do this and we were able to provide this service and our kids had this fantastic experience. Um, but it's unfortunate that that wasn't the case for kids everywhere. And, you know, that's, that's really the goal of our school and why we became who we are was to create this method of education that we could share with everyone. And it was a year that it was really challenging to do that because it became very obvious that we don't all have the same opportunities. Yeah. And, and you know what, Tanya, I think a lot of parents, I, I believe this being a parent of a, a high school graduate, now college age, you want the most unique experiences that you can have for your kids. And your school has those unique learning experiences. It's why you founded Up Academy. It's, it's to give children those unique educational experiences. And I can understand that. I, I love how you framed that. You know, it was the guilt of being open because, you know, you were able to do something that other people were not. You know, many people were able to work from home. Some people were not. And in it, in it's, there can be that guilt there. What was something that you learned from the business aspect? Because again, your school is a business as well. What was a lesson that you took from the business side of it that will impact you going forward? Because there's been a lot of these lessons that companies have said, hey, going forward, what we learned from the pandemic is that like for restaurants, you know, we're going to push more takeout. We're going to we're going to do some other things differently like that. What was something from a business standpoint that you learned that going forward is something that you'll possibly implement, you know, at, at, through the life of the, of the business and the school? Yeah, I think there were two main ones for us. Um, first is something that we hear a lot is just, you know, to stay true to your mission and stay true to your core. 
So when everything happened last summer, we instantly tried to create programming to support other families. We wanted to support homeschooling families. We wanted to support kids who were suddenly out of school and needed programs or needed classes. We wanted to create a, a distance learning program for students who weren't able or didn't want to go back to school back in the summer when we didn't know if kids would be going back to school. Um, and so we were instantly, you know, spinning our wheels and creating all of these things and doing all of these spinoffs and spent the summer talking to families and talking to organizations and talking to pod leaders and talking to a lot of the new companies that popped up around creating pods and around education. And what it came down to at the end of the summer, public schools chose to remain distance learning. Um, so nobody went back to school. So that whole piece of the business kind of fell away. Um, and, and homeschooling, while we definitely support everyone's choice to school the way they want to, um, it's as we've tried to support them off and on, it's been a really challenging market to support and to help. And so those programs didn't really take off either. And so we spent about four months kind of spinning wheels and trying to create things that were alongside our mission, but weren't aligned with our mission. Um, and, and none of it really took off. And so the lesson there for us was really staying true to our mission and what we want to do and doing that well and continuing along that path because those are the things and those are the areas where our business was growing, pandemic or not. Um, and so that, that was our first huge lesson was, you know, to make our plan and stay the course kind of regardless of what happens. Because if we were doing, if we were doing what we were doing and we were doing it well, it would still bring in the right community and the right families to support us moving forward. And when we tried to diversify too much, it just didn't work. Um, and so that was a huge piece of it. I'd say the other piece was more for me personally. Um, I'm an introvert. And so as soon as we weren't in the office and we had time at home and even with my kids home and even with balancing my husband working, me working, two kids in Zoom school, managing the Zoom school, um, I still found that I had more time and more capacity to take on projects. And so for me as a human and as a leader, it was a good lesson in how can I create that space for myself to continue to have that productive capacity going forward as we move back into being around a lot more people. That's awesome. That's awesome. Let's step aside, take a break. Mm -hmm. When we come back, we're going to talk to Tanya about Up Academy. I want to know more about this amazing school because um, education choice is something that a lot of states are battling. My state in West Virginia, it's been a hot button topic the last couple of years around charter schools and things like that. So I want to talk to Tanya about Up Academy, how it started, things like that. And so come back with us. I'm talking to Tanya Sheckley here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Come back in just a moment. Hey, everybody, Brian Sexton here. I want to tell you about our sponsor, SEO National. SEO stands for Search Engine Optimization. Now, what's that, you might say? Well, Search Engine Optimization helps you show up higher on search engines in front of paying customers for words that you, as a business owner, can monetize. What a great concept. SEO National is owned by my good buddy, Damon Burton, who's been a guest here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Not only has Damon and his team worked with businesses of all sizes, from e-commerce startups to NBA teams and Shark Tank featured businesses, but more importantly, Damon and his team are about transparency, trust, and providing lifetime value. So much so that he still has his first customers after opening SEO National 14 years ago. Let me give you some intentional encouragement and call Damon and his team today at 855-736-6285 or go to www.seonational.com and get a free quote. Tanya, let's talk about Up Academy. And, and again, as I teased before the break and I mentioned what we were going to talk about before the break is, you know, in my state, we have been fighting about charter schools because parents are saying, look, I want choices. I don't want just public school. If I want to send my son or daughter to a private school or a Christian school, or if I want to homeschool, 
our state legislature, I'm not trying to get political, but but it, it it's a very important topic in, in, in education choice. Our state legislature said, we're going to appropriate a portion of, of the tax money every year, and you can use that however you choose to use it. If you want to use it toward Christian education, you can. If you want to use it toward charter schooling or whatever, you can. And it was a huge victory for parents here. My, my son did not get to take advantage of it because he had already graduated, but it was a huge victory for parents here because of, of education choice. Take me through how Up Academy got started and kind of what the thought process was in your mind in starting Up Academy. Sure. Well, um, you know, it really started with the inspiration of my oldest daughter. Um, so my background is not in education. I was in sales and marketing. I sold beer for almost 10 years, which is about as opposite from education as you can get. Well, unless you're in the um, college setting. And then, you know, if, if you're in a school in Morgantown, West, well, yeah, if you're in a school in Morgantown, West Virginia, about three hours from here, who's had the reputation for decades as being the number one party school in the United States, then beer and education go well together. But yeah, I see, I see what you're saying there. So, so yeah, my, my background was in education and then my oldest daughter was born and Eliza had cerebral palsy. And so finding the right educational fit for her, um, she, she couldn't walk, she couldn't talk, finding a fit where they understood her intelligence, where she'd get the academics she was going to need to be successful and the support that she was going to need to communicate and to be independent just really didn't exist in the public school. So we started looking for alternatives and we looked all over the world to find the right school that had an inclusive, you know, an inclusive atmosphere where she could get what she was really going to need to thrive. And we didn't find it. Tanya, and I'm so going to jump in here and ask you, mm -hmm. if you don't mind, I can imagine you, you, when, when Eliza was of, of age to start kindergarten and you're having these conversations with your local school district, I'm sure, trying to find, you know, what programs do you have for special needs kids? How is she going to be accommodated, going to school, things like that? I have to believe, and I, I don't want to assume, but I'm trying to put myself into the moment with you and your husband, Chris, that as a parent myself, I would want to know these questions. It had to be incredibly frustrating to, to not get, you mentioned that you, you basically did a, a global search for some of these things. How frustrating was it to not have those resources support in your local community readily available to you? Yeah, well, I mean, taking a step back, the, the public schools do everything that they can. Um, and they're filled with really great people with really wonderful intentions, but they're also, you know, their hands are tied with policies and procedures in the amount of support that they can provide. Um, so the public school did offer some speech services, some physical therapy, some occupational therapy. I wasn't really interested in special needs classes or their programs. I wanted her fully included in a full mainstream school where she could get a full mainstream education. Certainly, yes. Um, and so that that all went well. The challenge, the challenge in the public school is that they don't, they just don't support our students well. So even even in a full inclusion setting, a student who has full inclusion is only actually in their full mainstream classroom between 40 and 80% of the time. Mm -hmm. So they're missing somewhere between 20 and 60% of the actual mainstream instruction because they're getting pulled out for the services that they also need but then you have students who it takes them longer to learn in my you know or longer to complete assignments in my daughter's case because she didn't have the physical ability to to write or to communicate quickly or to speak her answers the same way other kids do so it takes her you know three times as long to work through all of this stuff and she's being given somewhere between 20 and 60 percent less time was that, I, I gotta, I, I'm trying again, I'm trying to put myself in that moment. And, and I've got to, I've got to think that if I heard that here in West Virginia, the first thing in, in, in full transparency, I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but what we hear a lot here is, well, we need more funding. We need more funding. We need more funding. You know, let's throw more money at the problem. And, and our state, 
our, our top line expense in our state budget every year is education. We throw a lot of money at it, but we're always near the bottom when it comes to educational standards. West Virginia is either 49 or 50. Did you ever hear any excuses? You know, and, and again, I you mentioned, you know, there was, there was great support, but there was only a certain amount of time. And I would have to assume that that time was regulated by the California state legislature that by state law, they had to have a certain amount of time in, in this class and, and that class. Did, did you ever get that crusader moment inside of you where you said something has got to change about this situation? Because we had a lot of people in our state when we were going through some of these battles that took on that crusader role of, we're going to do something about this. Did you ever feel that crusader role rising up within you around your daughter's education? Well, I opened my own school. <laughs> you just donned the cape yourself. Well, and again, the reason I asked that question is there's a lot of people that do, they, they either get that welling up inside of them and go, somebody's got to do something or they, or like I just mentioned, they don the cape themselves and going, well, if somebody else isn't going to do it, I'm sure going to step up and do it. Yeah, I mean, we definitely saw a different, a different way to do education and a different way to be inclusive. And, you know, I have two other kids as well. And so looking at how do we build a school that really supports all of our students to the best of its ability? Um, and how do we allow all of these students to work together and to reach their potential? And, you know, when I, when I look about, look at it and when I talk about it, it's, you know, I kind of see two ways to start a revolution. There are those people who take the reins and instantly try to change the system and change it from the inside and go straight to the top and infiltrate that way. And then there's the million dots of light around the outside of all the people who are doing something different and putting pressure on the whole from the outside. Um, and I see myself as taking on one of those roles as how can we create something that's new, that's different, that's inclusive, that works incredibly well, where our students are excited and happy to come to school every day and all of them are getting what they need to reach their potential. And then how do we take that and help other school systems and districts to do the same? You mentioned your, your time in sales and marketing in, in, the, in, the, in the, um, the alcohol space. Did you have a moment where you, you, you kind of had one of those V8 moments where you, you mentioned a few moments ago, you said you knew a lot about that world, but you didn't know a lot about education. Was there a moment where the light bulb just, you had that V8 moment and you go, hey, what I did there translates here and we absolutely can do this? No. <laughs> no, there wasn't a moment. Um, you know, when I was with the beer company, I finished my MBA. I knew that I wanted to do something and start something. My MBA is in entrepreneurship. I looked at a variety of different business models and started different things, much to Chris's chagrin. <laughs> um, that tends to happen most of the time. You know, <laughs> you know, that's what my wife said about starting this podcast. Like, you're really going to start a podcast. So. But your yep. cause is more noble, Tanya. Well, he is very supportive. And, you know, as the, as the events in our life unfolded, has been nothing but supportive. Um, but that... Yeah, it came to a point, you know, when we had three kids and we were looking at the education system and realizing what that meant for our daughter and her future, that we knew that we needed to do something. And I think that, you know, all of us want to do everything that we can for our kids um, and want to give them the best that we can and whatever is within our ability. And starting a school and trying out how to create a new method of education just seemed seemed within my ability. Um, and I'm super fortunate to have a really supportive network and board of directors and advisors that have been along for this. Um, but there was never that V8 aha moment. In fact, I, I talk about starting the school and I kind of took all of the steps, right? I learned it, learned it in my MBA program. Here's how you start and you file the paperwork and you create a board of directors and you get your 501c3. And, and so there's this step ladder, right, of how to start a business. And we just kind of went through all of the steps 
And honestly, it wasn't until I was standing inside the building and I looked at another board member and I was like, holy shit, we started a school. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah. And we're like, wow, like, you know, we took all of these steps and it actually happened. Like, and, and so here we are and, and, you know, we're lucky that it, it panned out that way. And it's, it's part persistence, it's part luck and it's part, you know, just, just following the steps to make it happen. If you just keep going and make one step towards success every day, you'll get to where you want to be. I've got one more question as I jot down a note there. I've got one more question before we take a break. If you can spend an hour with the education secretary of the United States and just have a one-on-one conversation without, with them, what would you talk about, about the state of education in the United States? What, what, what one piece of wisdom do you think you could impart to that person from what you've done? Yeah, I mean, I think that we need to talk about how we can shift the entire education system instead of creating these huge barges that can't turn around in a river when the flow goes the other way and turning them into neighborhood tugboats and how they can quickly pivot, how they can support their neighborhood, how we can reach each and every learner in a small, you know, in a small setting. We've got to take these giant systems that we've created for efficiency and turn them back into the neighborhood schools that we started with um, so that we really can get to know each student, so that we can support each student, so that we can help them all to gain the skills that they're going to need to be successful in a world where, honestly, we can largely only imagine what it's going to be like. If someone from the Biden administration is watching this, you need to get a hold of Tanya Sheckley. And she needs to become the education director of the United States because that is, Tanya, that's brilliant because we, what we, and I promise I'm going to get ready to go to break, but what we faced here in West Virginia was we consolidated schools and we, we, we said, okay, if it works in Ohio and it works in Kentucky and it works in these neighboring states around us, then surely it's going to work here in West Virginia. And what happened is, Kids have hour-long bus rides because we've consolidated all these schools and we took away their identities in the communities they grew up in. And we said, okay, um, and I'll give you a for instance real quick. And the 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 son, the school that my son would have gone to high school is a is a mixture of one community and another community but it became the largest high school in the state of West Virginia. And we're walking into this place and it's enormous. And it's like, wait a minute, we can do better. We can, we, you know, my family and I, we can do better, but our state decided about 25 years or so ago to take these community schools that had deep roots to your point. And, and instead of building two tugboats and keeping two tugboats going efficiently, we built this behemoth barge that is just massive. And when you stare at it, it's like, that is the biggest barge I've ever seen. And so I love that analogy that you made there. I think we've got to get back to community-based education and kids thriving in their own communities. I, I love that. Um, what a great way to, to end this segment and pivot to our next segment. When we come back from break, we will tell Tanya's story and her story. It was a post that her husband, Chris made on LinkedIn that prompted me to reach out. And when you hear her story, you're going to see why Tanya Sheckley joining me on the intentional encourager podcast back in just a moment. Hey everybody, Brian Sexton want to tell you about my new book, people buy from people. 10 Powerful People Lessons from the Ultimate People Person, my dad. My dad was one of the greatest connectors that I ever knew. And he shared with me 10 connecting principles that I have used throughout my 25-year sales and sales management, customer engagement, and leadership career that I'm passing along to you. If you want to be a stronger deeper and more powerful connector. You've got to pick up a copy of People Buy From People. There are concepts in there that you may not realize help make you a power 
connector. You can go to Amazon and pick it up. Kindle, if you're an e-reader and you like to do it that way, or now available on Audible. And there's one other way you can get a copy of People Back from People. You can get one from me and I'll sign it for you. You go to intentionalmediaandpublishing at gmail.com and send me an email and I'll share with you the link on how you can get a signed copy. You can buy a signed copy directly from me. Again, people buy from people. If you want to connect like never before, pick up your copy today of People Buy From People. And now let's get back to more great conversation here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Tanya, let's get into your story. You mentioned your oldest daughter, Eliza, but take me as far back as you want to take me in your story. Maybe even before that, how you grew up, things like that, some, some pivotal moments in your life, and then just bring it full circle to, to, the, to the conversation where we're going. I, I want to give you the floor and just let you tell your story. <laughs> Thank you. That, that's a wide open invitation. And you set expectations so high at the beginning. We've of the got time. I mean, that's why we, you know, that's why we, we do. And, and I'll say this real quick before you get started. That's why we have the format that we have on the Intentional Encourager podcast is we want to give people room, space and time to really tell their stories. And so, yeah, you take all the time you need to really lay this story out and let folks connect with you through your story. Sure. Well, I think, um, I think you laid out that, that opening really well with room, space, and time. Um, because throughout, you know, throughout my career and throughout growing up, I've really given myself all of those things to learn and grow. Um, I wanted to be a dancer. My undergraduate degree is in dance. I moved to New York city so that I could study dance, um, and, and hopefully perform with a company and tour and travel and I decided that I hated New York. It was not my place in the world. Um, I didn't do well there. And so I went back to college and um, after that moved out West and spent some time snowboarding, spent some time working with youth, uh, worked for an organization, which was then called the Snowboard Outreach Society. Now it's called SOS Outreach. They were you an East Coast girl? Did you grow up in the East Coast or were, have you always been a West Coast girl? I'm a Midwesterner. I grew up in Wisconsin. Oh, wow. Wow. You have shed your Wisconsin accent well, I, I've got to say. Thank you. Are you a Packer? Are you a Green Bay Packers fan? Um, I would say that they're my second favorite team. So my, my husband's cousin worked for the 49ers for 13 years. So while he was there, we were 49ers fans. He's now taken a position with Jacksonville. So we're, we're taking on Jacksonville fanship. Um, mostly we're Jeff supporters. Well, uh, the reason I ask is my son is a, a avid Green Bay Packers fan. So is the rest of my family. Yeah. The outcast. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 what and I'll say one one thing as well too. For for a long time, the the play by play voice of the Jacksonville Jaguars was a guy named Brian Sexton. I think he still does work for the Jags. So, you know, as you become Jags fans, it's not this. It's not this one. I, you know, <laughs> but but there, but there is one. But I didn't mean to. You know, when when I hear somebody talk about Wisconsin, you automatically assume they've got to be rabid Packers fans because I think every I think to live in Wisconsin. You have to be a rabid pack. And of course, the Bucks, the Milwaukee Bucks just won the NBA championship. So I saw that. Yeah. You know, we're proud Wisconsin fans. moment. Yeah. We all wear cheese heads. We all go cow <laughs> tipping. Um, yeah. <laughs> so so you 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 move you move out west and you join snowboard outreach after yeah, leaving New in, York. Lived in Colorado for a few years, taught snowboarding. Um, and worked with at-risk youth and helped them through. It was a five-day learn-to-ride program where they're learning to overcome frustration and anger, to be patient with themselves, and to learn something new. And if you've ever tried to learn to snowboard, it it does all of those things intrinsically. Um, and there's a lot of pain, a lot of frustration, a lot of falling down, and a lot of getting back up again. Um, and so we're helping youth to work through those challenges, both on and off the mountain. Um, you know, from there, as I mentioned, I went and sold beer for 10 years, which gave me an opportunity to travel, which I never had. Um, I grew up in a family that was below the poverty line. 
we really, like, our big trips, we're driving to Iowa to go buy a lottery ticket and coming back home again. Um, so how do you go from dance in, in college as, as a major or, or thinking that might be a career to transitioning to sales and marketing? Did you, did you feel like that? How am I going to do this? Or was, you know, you've had a, an interesting kind of pathway. How did you find yourself to sales and marketing after, after all that time? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it leads to following the path and giving yourself space. I really just always moved along with whatever the next thing for me was, you know, it was dance and then it wasn't, and then it was the mountains and snowboarding. And then it wasn't like you can, well, most people can only live for so long in that mountain, mountain atmosphere on a ski instructor's salary, you know, without either becoming a really elite ski instructor and, and having your own private clients that return year after year. And of course you can make a living that way. Um, but for the rest of us who aren't going to be that person, you know, there's only so long you can live that lifestyle and you've got to find something else to do. Um, and I was in Colorado, the brewery was hiring, I needed a job. And so I applied. Um, and that was my foray into sales and marketing. I used to joke that sales is something that for those of us who didn't decide what we wanted to be when we grow up, it's where we ended up. Um, and that's really kind of what happened. It, that is so was... true. That is that really <laughs> is so true. I started out being a journalism major. I wanted to be a sports writer. Mm-hmm. And and I just had a, a, a guy on my podcast that I worked at the at the the paper in the sports department with, and he's still a sports writer 30 years later. And I I gravitated to sales and that is so true. I mean, you end up going into sales and marketing you almost kind of fall into it and then you realize you kind of fall in love with it. You mentioned traveling when you worked for the brewery that you worked for. What was a a lesson that you took from your career in sales and marketing? And you go, I've got to remember this. If I don't remember anything else, I've got to remember this. Well, I think it was two. The first is that traveling for work really isn't all that fun. It's still work. (laughs) Um, you know, it, it, you have this romantic idea of people who travel for work and, Ooh, you were in New York last week and, Ooh, you were in London and you were in New Orleans and this is fantastic. But, but they don't we, ask you how long you were in the airport waiting for your plane. They don't ask you, you know, how many hotels you were in, um, or more, more commonly how many hotels you got out of. Cause there were cities like I went to Dallas for three days. I never saw more than the Marriott. I'm yeah. sure Dallas is a beautiful city. I can tell you the Marriott's nice. Mm-hmm. Um, those late night uh, those late night flights getting home and and you're praying that nothing gets canceled because you just want to get home and <laughs> and you know um you know your biggest fear is ended up sleeping at the airport because you never want to do that yeah i i, I get it I, and i told somebody one time I, I don't mean to to jump in there but somebody told me that that at our church they were like oh that must be so great to get to travel and and things like that. That would be so awesome. And I looked at him and I said, let me ask you a question. You like eating dinner by yourself? And they go, what? I said, yeah, you like eating dinner by yourself. And they go, well, not really. I said, well, then you'd hate traveling because, you know, for 150 nights a year, I ate dinner by myself. You know, I had I had dinner and, you know, I, I would eat it you know, this restaurant or that restaurant. So yeah, I could totally empathize with you. When was that moment for you that you said, yeah, enough is it. I remember when it was for me, I can, I can take you to the spot. The moment where I said, I got to come off the road. What was that moment like for you, Tanya, when you decided I need to come off the road and be home? Yeah, well, I, I always knew that I wanted to do something else. Um, and I actually like eating dinner alone. For me, it's going to the movies. I hate going to the movies alone. <laughs> I won't do it. I enjoy going and savoring a good meal by myself. <laughs> um, but, you know, I got to a point, I was finishing my MBA. I was pregnant um, and the company was splitting. Uh, they had gone through a merger and it seemed like a really good time for me to be able to step out and go do something else. Um, so many aspects of my life had come together in one point and it was time to take a new direction. Um, so that was a pretty easy transition. Um, 
But I go back to, you know, the other part of the question that you asked, you know, what did I learn from that sales and marketing role? And I'd say that one big piece of it was that, you know, you become like the people that you surround yourself with. And, and what happened to me is I got to a point where I knew I wanted to do something else. I wanted another role in the company, or I wanted to work for an adjacent company, or I needed to do something different. And I knew that was coming. And I looked around at all the roles that I wanted to be in and everybody that was there had graduate degrees. Um, and I looked around at my circle of friends and realized that almost all of my friends that were doing things that I thought looked like they'd be fun to do, um, also had graduate degrees or were finishing their masters. Um, and so it, it really became that moment for me of understanding that I need to surround myself with the people who I admire and who I want to be more like. Um, and also that was a, a huge wake up for me to go back to school, which I did. <laughs> um, That's a great thing. I, I've got my MBA and, and people ask me that they're like, what was it for you? And I said, for me, it was the challenge, number one, of doing it after doing my undergrad. But two, I wanted to put something on the wall that nobody else could take away from me. You know, taking that next, like you said, taking that next step in doing what you saw other people do. And then when you hang that, that MBA on the wall, which mine is directly to my left, then you go, you know what? It was worth it. The homework sessions, the stuff like that, it was worth it because, you know, Tanya, that's the thing is you can, you know, you can do what everybody else is doing, but, but at the end of the day, do you have something to show for it? And, and I love what you said there about becoming the pe like the people you surround yourself with. That is such good advice. It's important to be careful to choose your friends wisely. <laughs> yes, very much so. I want to fast forward just a little bit for for time's sake. You you get that graduate degree. Take me through the next part of, of life um, and, and those moments there. You get that degree, but you also mentioned that the company was moving in a different direction. They were they were merging and things like that. Take me through the next part of, of transitioning out of your sales and marketing career into what you're doing now. Sure. So I, I left the company um, and my daughter was born and Eliza was born five weeks early. Um, I was adamant about having a midwife and having a natural birth. Um, she was born by C-section after 13 hours of natural labor, the doctor did something that doctors rarely do and tried to turn her while she was inside of me, which I, I honestly believe was probably just as painful as childbirth, although I haven't given birth naturally, so I can't compare. Um, but she was born and, and she was born without a suck, swallow and gag reflex. She was born without being able to kind of support her head the way a newborn child could. Um, she couldn't nurse. Um, we struggled. We spent three weeks with her in the NICU. She was transferred to UCLA. She had a surgery to get a G-tube put into her belly um, so we could feed her directly into her stomach so she didn't have to nurse. Um, the whole time I was still adamant about feeding her only breast milk and that the best nutrition that she could get was going to come from me and not from a can. Um, and so it was consistent fights with nurses, consistent fights with doctors to try and make sure that we could get her from the very beginning so that we could get her the best that we possibly could to help her recover. Were um, you ever scared? Because it, I, I'm, I'm having a little bit of flashbacks. My son was born five weeks premature, like your daughter. My, my wife had an emergency C-section like, like you. We, we, she gave birth to a four-pound baby. By the time we took him home, he was three pounds, eight ounces. There was some fear. There was some trepidation there. I know what we felt. Your daughter doesn't have a gag reflex. She can't nurse. They're doing a G, an NG tube. What were those initial moments like for you and Chris, those first three or four weeks? Because you go through something traumatic like that. You had all of this planned. You wanted a midwife. You wanted 
natural birth. You you wanted to breastfeed, all these things. And, and at every point, there was roadblocks in your way. How did you kind of get through that and take me through your mindset during those moments where you were you were having those battles with doctors and nurses? Sure. Um, I, I think I've just always been someone who kind of does whatever I believe is right. Um, and so it was just a constant battle. And every time a new wall went up, we plowed it down and ran through it. Um, and figured out a way to do what we believed was the best thing, given all of the knowledge and experience that we had. So, yeah, we were afraid. We were new parents. We didn't know what we were doing. Um, but we learned really quickly how to advocate for our child and how to advocate for what we needed and for what we believed was the right things to do. Um, and that, you know, that continued as she grew. You know, she missed milestones as she got older. Um, I took her off the G-tube with uh, support of a group of doctors that I found in Austria and then took her back into UCLA and she had lost a little bit of weight and you know had a team of five doctors stand in front of me and essentially telling me I was a terrible parent and my child was failing to thrive because of choices I had made. And I was saying, no, actually she's back to gaining weight and she's eating and she's doing well. And this is how I'm going to support her growth. Um, and so it was... Yeah, constant battles with doctors through that period of time. And then she was healthy and she was growing and she was great. And, you know, we were seeing therapists and we were still seeking out programs around the world. We worked with an organization in Utah. We worked with an organization in Philadelphia. We worked with the doctors, like I mentioned, in Austria. Um, and just trying to find all of the right people to support her growth and development. Um, and then we got to the school district. And you know, to your point with state funding and the way all the states look at things, everybody has their own interpretation of, of what IDEA means and mm -hmm. what access for students with disability means. And every state and every school district interprets that differently. And here, when we got to school, their interpretation was she has every right to access the building and to be allowed to be in the educational setting but we are going to guarantee no actual level of education once she's inside. Wow. And so that was the part where I got really angry and frustrated with the school system. Of course, um, uh, and, any parent would because- <laughs> Right? Like what know, if that were the setting? Like what if that were the standard for every child? Yeah, they can come and they might learn something and that'll be okay. Like, well, the standard for every child should be applied equally because, you know, you're not saying, okay, because you live here and I live there and you pay more property taxes than me, you get the advantage. That's not how it works. And I can imagine the frustration. That would be, Tanya, that would be just like the worst conversation. You almost, you, you almost leave that conversation going, how can you say those types of things. It's like, okay, we'll guarantee this, but we won't do that. You know, she won't get what everybody else is getting. That that is not equitable at all. Yeah. How she did you and her, her? But she may or may not get what everyone else is getting. How did you and your husband react? I mean, I, I, my wife and I, my Tanya and I would be ticked if that were us. How did you and Chris react? Yeah, I, I was upset. I was annoyed. I was frustrated. You know, and we looked for another way. And that was really, you know, that was the beginning of the birth of Up Academy. Wow. Wow. Take me through um, what really prompted me to reach out to Chris was, was a, a tragic event in, in your life. And, and again, I, 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 folks, what, what speaks to me is what people go through. And that's why this podcast exists is because everybody goes through things in their life and it shapes who they are and it shapes what they do. And, and there's so much connectivity and commonality in the world. You know, everybody goes through certain things. Take me through the next few years and things like that to, to get us to where we are. Um, and, and I want to say up front, I'm grateful to you from the bottom of my heart for being so transparent and just being willing 
to share your story. It's going to help someone listening out there. So Tanya, the floor is yours. Take it away. Yeah. So we, you know, like I said, we, we did enroll her in public school um, because that was our option at the time. And I, we learned a ton from the school about education. It was a project-based learning school. It was a progressive public school. Um, we were fortunate to have incredible teachers um, through her time there. Uh, but along the way, on the side, we were looking to start Up Academy. And Up Academy got its 501c3 status in December of 2015. And we were moving forward and we were looking for locations. Um, and then one Friday afternoon, Eliza came home from school not feeling well. And I laid her down to take a nap. And when I went back in to check on her two hours later, her lips were blue. Um, we called the paramedics. We took her to the hospital, you know, and, and she was declared, you know, declared deceased a couple of hours later. And in that afternoon, you know, I lost, I lost my sweet little girl. I lost my firstborn. Um, and we weren't sure what we were going to do moving forward. Um, and we had done so much for her up until that point and our lives with children really revolved around everything we had learned from her. Um, but, you know, I talk about grief and I talk about tragedy and I really believe that we can look at it two different ways, right? I could, I could either wallow in that grief and continue to eat brownies for breakfast and hide in my bed, um, which I did some days. Um, or I could try and figure out what were the lessons? What was the legacy of her life? What did she teach us? And how can I use that to help others? Um, and with, with Chris's help and support and pushing a lot of the time, um, and with our other two children, you know, it really moved us forward into still continuing to create Up Academy. You know, Eliza, Eliza taught us to be kind. She taught us to be strong. And she taught us to always do our best. And so those were the three kind of agreements that we built Up Academy on as we started the journey. And how do we make a place built on kindness and inclusion where all kids can reach their potential and see their own strength and where everybody has the opportunity to do their best. Um, and so, you know, we, she passed away in 2016 and I took about a year away completely from the project because I couldn't function. I couldn't, <laughs> if it weren't for the community meal chain, I'm not sure that our family would have eaten for the first three months. Um, how do you deliver that message to your other two children? Because again, I've not walked that road. We we've dealt with death differently. I lost my dad suddenly about eight and a half years ago. So I know that part of it. But I remember when my wife's father passed away, my son, our son was three and a half. Had no clue how to tell him what had happened to his, to his papaw, as he called him, mm -hmm. in his little mind. How do you deliver that message to your other kids? And, and, and I, how were your other two children when Eliza passed away? Yeah, so the kids were there. Um, Eliza was six, my middle daughter Breda was four, and my little one was 18 months, um, maybe a little over 18 months. He wasn't quite two. Um, and she was there, like Breda saw her come out of her room. She saw me doing CPR in the living room. She saw the paramedics come and the fire people come and take her in the ambulance. She went to the hospital. She was there when you know, they were intubating her and trying to revive her. Like she was a part of all of that. Um, so definitely the explanation that what had happened was that her sister had died and she wasn't going to be with us anymore was an ongoing conversation. And it took, it took my daughter about six weeks before she woke up one morning, just tears streaming down her face. And it had kind of set in what had happened and what that meant for our lives. Um, and with my son, it's just, well, with the whole family, it's just an ongoing conversation. You know, we remember her, we laugh about her, we joke about the things that she thought was funny. Um, and she's just always a part of our lives and our conversation, even though she's not here so that 
you know, they can both continue to remember her. Um, yeah, and so it's it's ongoing, and we all, you know, we all deal with the grief in different ways, and it comes up at different times. Um, this yeah. year, this year, my older daughter Eliza's birthday was a lot harder on my middle daughter. Um, she had a really tough time for a couple of days, um, but things, you know, it, it's. I, I liken it to ocean waves. It it kind of ebbs and flows, and you're never quite sure when that sneaker wave is going to come in and take you out. Um, but a lot of the time, it's it's pretty gentle and it's pre it's present, but it's not overwhelming. Um, you, you know, there's a bond between sisters, and and I'm thinking back to a conversation on this podcast that I had with a lady named Deanna Russo, and Deanna's younger sister was killed by a drunk driver in an, in an accident and she was a teenager and Deanna was um she was in college so her sister was finishing high school she was in college there's a bond there between sisters and I, I have to imagine that your daughter still has that bond with her sister who's no longer here I've got to ask you this Tanya what did you learn about yourself through that period? Because, you know, as parents, um, we were watching we were watching a movie. My wife and I were watching a movie about a family that lost their youngest son. And the mom said to the dad, she said, you know, he's half you, he's half me. And same thing with your daughter, half you, half Chris. Same thing with my son, half me, half my wife, Tanya, what did you learn about yourself through those moments when you mentioned eating brownies for breakfast in bed? Looking back, what do you think you learned or what do you know you learned? Um, well, I'd like to say something really deep and philosophical. <laughs> um, but I think a lot of it's just grace and patience with yourself. Um, you know, my, and trauma does this, but my entire brain changed. And there were things that used to be easy for me that then I had trouble remembering. There's stuff that, you know, just falls off of my list of things to do that was important one day that isn't important the next. There are days when I just can't focus or stay, um, stay engaged with something. And that's just part of how my brain changed through the trauma. And so it's that, you know, instead of constantly striving to do 100% every day, learning to give myself that grace and that space and that knowledge that every day isn't going to be 100%. And that's okay. And you need to take that time away and allow that space and allow just for that sense of not being motivated for whatever it is. Um, you know, and sometimes sometimes it's going to see her friends, um, you know, in a soccer game and it's really hard. Or like when all of the girls turn 10, for some reason, double digits were really hard when, you know, she passed away at six when her circle of friends turned 10. And for several days, we'd go to a birthday party and I couldn't get anything done like the week afterwards. Um, but just learning, you know, really learning to listen to whatever is going on in your body emotionally. Um, and that's been important for me through this tragedy. But when we look at society as a whole right now, and we look at what we've collectively been through in the last year and a half, I think it's an important message for everyone because we've all lost something and we're all having those moments of yeah. grief and of not feeling motivated and just of not being able to give a hundred percent every day. Um, but that's one of the things that Eliza taught too, was to always do your best, but your best is different in any given day, given any circumstance or what's happening in the world around you. Um, and so just allowing for that. I got to go here for just a quick second. What do you think Liza, Eliza's legacy will be as it's interwoven with the legacy of Up Academy? So if we were able to fast forward 25 years, and obviously 
Up Academy has Eliza woven into it. I, I just get that deep sense from our conversation that she is interwoven through all of it. If you were able to look down the road 25 years, what do you think the legacy will be in the continuing interweaving of her memory and Up Academy? Yeah, I mean, our our goal with the school has always been to support as many students as we can. Um, and so for each one of those students who is facing a challenge, and a part of our mission is inclusion of students with physical disabilities, and so really reaching those students who are who are bright, who are curious, but who have those physical limitations, and not only giving them a chance through UP Academy to get a full academic and independence education, but also doing that outreach to other schools and other districts and teaching other places how to do that so that we can reach and help and support more of the kids that were like Eliza. Um, so that's a huge piece of it. You know, and the even grander vision of, of UP Academy is really to support, you know, every classroom and every teacher so that every student gets the support they need to reach their potential. And how do we shift education into away from being this efficient behemoth that can't turn in a river into a relationship building, supportive, caring environment where every student in every body with every challenge and um, can really be supported to be the best that they can be. That, that thing that you guys have done, what I was thinking about as you were talking was from the minute Eliza was born, you had to advocate. And we talked about that a few minutes ago, advocate. You, you mentioned that you and your husband had to advocate for her. And it seems to me like the theme of Up Academy is continuing to advocate for, for children, to give them great opportunities to be what God intended them to be in life. And I hope that you get many more years to advocate for as many children as you can through the through up academy and so that just resonated with me tanya is it it just seemed like the i th that it was just so thick with irony you advocate from from the moment she's born and you're still advocating with her in mind and so thank you for doing that you know speaking for families in in california thank you because we, we need more people to advocate for kids and, and, and get them opportunities. I have to ask you this as we wrap up our time together. And thank you for your transparency. We've gone a few minutes over, but thank you for sharing that, that part, some of those really difficult parts. Share with folks your biggest piece of intentional encouragement. Hmm. You know, I, I think that I think that we've covered a few. Um, I think a huge piece is what we learned from Eliza. You know, to to always be kind, to always be strong, whatever strong is in that moment, and to always do our best, whatever our best is. You know, combine those things with taking whatever has been you know, your turning point moment, whatever has been that thing that happened in your life that changed your life and using the lessons that you learned from that to make a difference for others. Um, and then surrounding yourself with the people that you want to be like. Wow. Um, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. In this we podcast. really have. And I, and I'm, <laughs> I'm grateful for that. And, and again, as I mentioned off the top, that's why this format exists is to have the room, the space and the time to be able to do that. One last thing, tell folks how they can connect with you, find out more about Up Academy and, and tap into a lot of the resources that you have available. Of course. Um, so Up Academy is an independent school in the Bay Area. Our website is upacademysf.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on Instagram at the same Up Academy SF. 
Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, you can reach out to me at Tanya Sheckley on LinkedIn. And um, I also have my personal website, which this podcast will be listed out there after it after it goes live on tanyasheckley.com. And we've recently launched reveleducator.com as a professional development and consulting support arm of Up Academy. That is so cool. Um, Tanya Sheckley, spelled T-A-N-Y-A. My, my Tanya's is T-O-N-Y-A, but hers is T-A-N-Y-A, Sheckley, S-H-E-C-K-L-E-Y. And by the way, when I do talk to text and I say my wife's name into talk to text, it automatically, every time, is spelled just like your name, T-A-N-Y-A. It doesn't recognize the T-O-N-Y-A's of the world. So we got to get that fixed. But T-A-N-Y-A, Tanya Sheckley, S S. Look at me. S H E C K L E Y. Tanya Sheckley.com. Rebeleducator.com. Up Academy SF on LinkedIn, Instagram, or not on LinkedIn, Instagram, other places that you can find it. But Tanya, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Thank you. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Means. And of course, the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. If you're not subscribed to the Intentional Encourager podcast, hit the subscribe button wherever you get podcasts so you don't miss an exciting episode where you can get encouraged and stay encouraged. And remember, anyone, anywhere, at any time, any place can be an intentional encourager.